Welcome to Epistemic Media, the show where truth matters and so do you. This episode, we will be discussing presuppositional apologetics, its basic application, and how you can use it in your daily life. All right, guys. So what's the deal with presup? A hot new thing. <laughs> Very new, right? Because, uh, you know, Paul was using classical apologetics. That's right. And then mm-hmm. uh, Peter was using evidential right, apologetics, right. actually. That's right. Um, no, but the yeah, and, and we would argue, uh, we would argue just about any useful conclusion for life, uh, in a similar way that to live life meaningfully, and by meaningfully, I don't mean like some kind of subjective sense of personal fulfillment, but living an existence that isn't utter absurdity presupposes a, a, a biblical worldview anyway. So, fight it, fight it all you want, you'll get there eventually, uh, <laughs> kicking and screaming. And precept for me is the uh, it's a meta argument about argumentation itself that basically states that the things necessary for intelligible, meaningful experience also apply to argumentation. Because if you're going to argue, you're going to assume like a, a uniformity in nature, uh, you're going to assume the reliability of the senses, the mind, reasoning, and you're going to implicitly assume all of these things that cannot be true outside of the Christian worldview. If the universe is ultimately chaotic, if there's no creator, if the mind is just a emergent property of stardust bumping into itself, then there's no reason to trust your thoughts, no reason to trust your reasoning, no reason to be able to argue in the first place for something immaterial like truth. So if you're going to argue for truth, you're ultimately going to presuppose Christianity. Uh, And I mean that, not that non-Christians can't argue, but that when they argue, if they're consistent with it, uh, their worldview will become, it will approach Christianity as they become consistent in their argumentation, in their meta-argument. So the closer a worldview is to Christianity, the better it satisfies what we call the preconditions for intelligibility. So that's presuppositionalism for me. It's a way to show the unbeliever that they are so far without excuse that the very fact that they're arguing against Christianity presupposes its truth. Yeah. And it it begins with the recognition that everyone universally operates on some presuppositions that whether we like it or not, we're presupposing things right now and every moment as we live in the world. Like I'm sitting in a an office chair right now, I'm assuming that it's going to hold me up. When I walk along the floor, I'm assuming that's going to hold me up. When I walk outside, I'm assuming it's, well, it's a little bit warm outside today. So I'm assuming it's going to continue to be uh, warm for the rest of the day because um, that's what the forecast says. Um, I'm also presupposing that my sense of temperature is accurate, that it actually is warm outside when I go outside. Um, so at, at the end of the day, everybody is presupposing certain things about reality, that it's consistent. Um, I'm assuming things about my environment. I'm presupposing all of those things. And so presuppositional apologetics starts with the recognition that all of us operate on presuppositions. And for the Christian, we can, we can justify those things by saying that there is, there's a God that, that upholds the universe, that keeps it consistent, um, and that has made the world to be this way. Um, and then the, the apologetic method really, really revolves around 
uh, attacking or, or going after the presuppositions of, of the unbeliever and asking for a justification. Um, because the truth is without God, you can't justify those presuppositions. But if you believe in God, if you know that God exists, which we all know that God exists, but if you believe God exists, you can actually uh, epistemologically justify those presuppositions. And this obviously has some huge ramifications, which, which really can't be overstated. I'm reading a book right now, not a Christian book at all, um, about uh, Gandhi. Maybe wasn't as as great of a chap as we think, as we might think in some areas. But for example, you talked about you know these very basic examples, which are helpful. But the reality is that we we like to think in broader categories as people. We don't just believe that the floor is going to hold me up and it's warm outside and things like that. But we have much deeper presuppositions like human life has value and you know people matter and human rights are an important consideration and the environment matters and, and uh, things that if you really corner people on that and, and ask them to explain to you like why they don't have an answer it, because it just does is, is the answer that you you're ultimately going to get down to and so different worldviews have given very different explanations on how the world we feel like we can assess these different worldviews because of something that uh, is very deep within us. So, for example, in, in Gandhi's worldview, it was okay that not only was there a caste system, but that a, an enormous amount of people are just born to be subservient to everyone else. In some worldviews, it's okay, and it's just the fact of life, that some people are just weaker than others and they just don't deserve to survive or they don't deserve to thrive and they take a very darwinian approach to that in in some worldviews the the collective is the all-important thing you know the and and all all means are justified by the end of preserving the the collective others will take a far more individualistic view and as long as i'm not you know killing someone i could do whatever i want without any considerations for you know my family or their well-being or anything like that when we talk about the Christian worldview in that respect, having clear presuppositions, uh, or rather having just justifying our presuppositions, I think it's justifying something that we all believe but don't always say. Uh, we do believe in a sense of equality, and we do believe in that having to manifest itself somehow by us holding each other accountable to some larger goal, for lack of a better way of putting it. One of my favorite ways to to apply this in, a, in an apologetic conversation is, and you've probably seen memes about this on the page, um, if you followed us for any amount of time. Uh, one of my favorite examples is um, talking about justifying morality, um, where I'll, I'll ask the person I'm talking to, like, would it be okay if I stole your wallet? And they usually say no, because they have at least something valuable in their wallet. And I would ask why, like, by what standard is it not okay for me to steal your wallet? Like, if I can get away with it, and I can run away faster than you can punch me in the face or whatever, why is it not okay for me to steal your wallet? It'd be great. It'd be better for me. Um, it would it would contribute to my flourishing. So why should I not steal your wallet? All right. So we're basically asking by what standard? Exactly. And that, that is also my favorite way to use it because everyone's appealing to some standard, some authority, some uh, like every single truth claim, every single moral claim, everything that they say, they're basically appealing to some transcendent standard, particularly if they're going to try to bind your conscience on an issue like, oh, we should do X, Y, and Z, or you should do this. It's like, if you're going to live in a world where oughts exist, where shoulds exist, then you're necessarily appealing to something beyond the self, beyond the collective even, that 
is binding on your behavior, on what you should do, on what you should believe. Yeah, even um, a truth statement. If this is true and you should believe this, okay, well, why? If you're saying I should believe something, then you're saying it's transcendent, it's universal, it's binding, and I have an obligation to believe this quote-unquote truth claim that they're putting forward. So a, a presuppositional approach just says, well, okay, what are you appealing to? What's your standard? What's your authority? What's your source? Because uh, ultimately, uh, the unbelieving worldview is, on one hand, appealing to themselves or appealing to, to whatever standard they, they consider highest. But in a more real sense, they're ultimately appealing to God's world. They're appealing to God in a really roundabout and ultimately wrong way. Uh, but he's the only authority upon which truth claims can be based. So when you say God is, or you know, you, you must believe in Hinduism because Brahma is the, the truth of the universe. Well, you're, you're assuming a universe, you're assuming truth, uh, and you're assuming some, some transcendental universal. But the only transcendental universal that actually you know, can make sense of reality is the, the triune Christian God. Well, and also, if you're if you if you think you're going to solve that problem by becoming a nihilist and saying that nothing is nothing matters, or you know, or some kind of postmodern approach where truth is all relative and things like that, I, I defy people to live like that for a day. Mm. Where 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 you actually apply that, and even then, you you have that question of why why are you trying? Who cares, mm -hmm. right? Because People will give those kinds of answers because they think they've solved the problem, which in itself presupposes a problem <laughs> mm -hmm, <laughs> and, the right. need for a, and the need for a solution. So again, it doesn't matter how hard you try. You're always going to come back to those same presuppositions. And the only question then is which worldview can take care of all of these. Uh, and it's not a competition. We're not, we're not supposing that we're not saying that uh, Hinduism gets like super close. It's like a 99% whatever and christianity gives you that little boost no it's not even close yeah right speaking of nihilism and skepticism uh one of the founders of skepticism proper the basic presupposition that you, you can't know anything for sure he was walking down the street and uh i guess a cart or a, a buggy at the time um like ran off the road a bit and he stepped out of the way and that was used to uh, berate him for pretty much the rest of his career. It's like, oh, oh, did, did you know the cart was going to hit you? Because uh, that seems to predicate some sort of knowledge. You, you did something. You moved. Um, so, yeah, you cannot live consistently with a, with a pure nihilism or pure skepticism because you, you have to operate on knowledge. You can't do anything. Like, am I actually hungry? Should I eat? Is there even a body to feed uh like the existence of the self do i exist well what's doing the thinking what's doing the doubting uh you, you cannot operate on a framework that is devoid of knowledge but any framework that necessitates well every framework necessitates the existence of knowledge that knowledge can only be justified one way and that way is through the christian god uh, but right. with, with nihilism um they'll say they can't know and not only that, but they can't know that they can't know because they have a, a like an infinitely regressive skepticism that just, I can't know that I can't know that I can't know that I can't know. And, and in that way, they think it's consistent. 
Because if you embrace that sort of ideology, consistency really doesn't matter. Again, ultimately, they're going to live in God's world according to God's rules, and they're still going to operate as if truth does exist because you can't operate totally skeptically or totally nihilistically. And I think that's one of the beauties of, of using uh, presuppositional apologetics well is because it, it can demonstrate that the way, the way a person lives and argues can self-refute their own worldview if it's not consistent with the way that they live. So say you're doing street apologetics. Uh, you're out on the town and let's say you go to a, <laughs> a, a popular spot where proselytizing is at least tolerated and someone comes up to you and they're, oh, oh, you're Christian. You're one of those crazy people. Well, I'm X, Y, Z. And they just start getting into an argument with you. Do you bring up presuppositionalism immediately and just destroy their worldview and they walk off in a huff? Or is there a more <laughs> uh, church-based, more personal-based approach? Because the, one of the largest critiques that I have of presuppositionalism or had when I was first coming into it was that it's perfect for the debate stage but how in the world am I going to use this in an actual conversation with an actual human being? Because most people are not going to want to get into meta arguments and preconditions for intelligibility right off the bat, if they're even capable of doing that kind of thinking without me having to teach them how to do that kind of thinking. So how do you use precept in a practical street level manner? Well, I think Paul gives us a really great blueprint for that in Acts 17. I mean, I know that that's like all apologists go-to passage. Um, but I think there's a reason for that. It's because Paul, while he's not saying that, you know, um, here I am with just one competing worldview amongst many and blah, 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 and, and, and this sort of thing. Um, Paul is kind of meeting people where they're at. Usually when I talk to people, um, it doesn't even have to be apologetics, but it certainly applies here as well. I, I first want them to talk a little bit. Um, if I, if I can maybe sound a little cynical for a second, because sometimes people will say something incriminating. <laughs> so they'll say something, <laughs> they'll say something that then gives you something to respond to. So if I'm approaching somebody and I'm saying, you know, sir, one day we're all going to die and meet our creator and, and we, and we have to give an account of our lives and, and I'm here, you know, to give you the, the way out, so to speak. Um, and they go, well, no, that's ridiculous. Then I want to ask a question or two. Okay, well, what do you think happens and, and why and these sorts of things? And as they start to paint a picture for you, you can talk to them in a way that they understand. Paul in 1 Corinthians calls, it, calls that, I think, being all things to all people. But the Jews, he spoke a little bit differently because they had other worldview baggage. With Gentiles, he spoke a little bit differently because they had other worldview baggage. And I think that Paul demonstrated consistently knowing his audience. And I think the way to know your audience to know your audience is to first get to know them. So I, I, I don't ever go up to somebody and say, God exists. And they say, no. And I go, by what standard? And I just run away. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like to use a little more tact than that because they probably don't know the name Doug Wilson, let alone care who he is. Mm -hmm. so, That's right. Yeah, I think that part is really key. Um, getting to know your audience, getting to know the person you're talking to. Um, is helpful one like you said that they might incriminate themselves but also it's it's really helpful to know where they're actually coming from and what they mean by the labels that they use because they may come up to you and say well I'm at this um, but they're more than just that label they're a person who's applying it and who is understanding it in a particular way and so 
um, I, I think it's really helpful at the start of the conversation to really get to know the person that you're talking to, the worldview um, that they're that they're actually coming from. Like like you said, listen to the way that they describe what they think uh, happens after they die, or where they think the world came from. Basic questions like that to really get a sense for what's what, what's going on. I have a I have a background in collegiate debate and. You, you would never want to go into an argument without having as much of the context as you can. Um, so it, for one, just to prevent yourself from, uh, you know, saying something stupid that doesn't actually work for the conversation, but also so that you can make sure your arguments are actually tailored to the, the person that you're talking to. Um, I also think the, the use of examples is really great. Like, um, if it, like going back to the wallet thing, that's an example I like to use that's really concrete and easy to understand and sort of points out the reason that somebody would need to justify morality is because, oh, somebody might try to steal my wallet and they might ask me why it's wrong. So when it comes to street level apologetics, it's innately practical first to stop and listen, to use tact, to be a decent human being, not just a, an avatar for a specific uh, methodology of apologetics. Um, but to actually engage necessarily, you, you can't have a conversation with someone without actually, you know, listening or having them on the other end. Otherwise, you're just going to, you know, be giving a speech on a street corner. And every time someone tries to interrupt you, you're just going to say like, you know, repent sinner. And that's not going to be actually helpful in terms of uh, not that we're aiming at rhetoric, but you want to be at least somewhat rhetorically effective. If you're trying to be faithful to, to scripture and the apologetic method that's put forward in scripture, then you're going to have to actually engage. Yeah. And that's, you know, the ultimate goal of apologetics is to, to convince someone of, of our worldview to, to lead them to faith in Christ. And if, if that's truly the goal in it, it needs to start from a place of love and not from pride or from animosity or from trying to create a scuffle, I guess. It's really from from trying to have a, a real conversation with a real person who, who needs Jesus and trying to show someone that the Christian worldview can um, can actually change their life. 